Welcome to The Emergent Human, where we explore optimizing health, embodied spirituality, and post-conventional living. I'm Michael Osterlink, a therapist, coach, and educator, and I'm your host. Today's show is brought to you by Somatic Psychotherapy Today. Today's guest is Frederick Lowen. Frederick, son of Alexander Lowen, MD, is a psychotherapist and bioenergetic therapist, also executive director of the Alexander Lowen Foundation and manager of Lowen Copyrights. With extensive experiences in bioenergetics, bioenergetic therapy, workshops, and training groups since 1968, Frederick seeks to expand the visibility, application, and use of bioenergetics for health and well-being. He presently lives and practices in Vermont in the USA. Good to see you, Frederick. Yeah, thank you, Michael. Good to join you for this. Well, I appreciate your time. And uh, before we jump into what is bioenergetics and why more people should know about it, yeah. tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into the therapeutic world. Well, you know, like a lot of sons, if the father is engaged in something, uh, you know, um, it's just a natural sort of thing oftentimes, as it was for me as a child to think that I would... Uh, following my father's footsteps in many respects. Um, <clears throat> and uh, up until the time I was in college, I thought that's the way my life would go. Um, but I hated school. And, uh, <clears throat> uh, and, and the bioenergetic work, by the way, is not just uh, a modality of therapy it really speaks to a kind of a lifestyle. Yeah. You know, there, there is a lifestyle aspect uh, to the bioenergetic work, uh, a lifestyle in which, you know, you practice in effect, uh, um, you know, being really with your feelings, with your true feelings, to, to live a life of, uh, uh, of feeling as opposed to living a life of ideas and plans and that sort of thing. Um, <clears throat> and it has a lot to do with how we raise children. Mm. You know, if we support children's feelings, then, then they're healthier than if we don't allow them to have their feelings which unfortunately is more the common experience, not only, but especially in our country, in the United States, you know? I think it has to do with the fact that we continue to be the wealthiest and most powerful country on the planet. And there's a huge story behind that, but I think that that does have to do with, you know, uh, not allowing feelings to mess things up, right? Uh, not too much anger. We don't want to see very much anger and, and everybody should be happy. You know, uh, sadness is, is uh, considered to be uh, a weakness, a vulnerability that many people need to hide uh, because of their fear of being seen and judged as uh, being weak. But we're all weak. We're all vulnerable, you know? And so to deny that, is um, is a little bit of what we'll talk about in much more detail, the mind-body split, you know, in which uh, our thinking is not connected to our feelings and we deny many of our feelings, you know, we don't allow our anger to be seen even. Uh, 
But to bring it back to your question about my background, you know, I was raised in with this lifestyle and very fortunate, although it created its own problems uh, in itself. But I was raised with the feeling that, you know, my feelings were valid. My feelings were okay. I have a right to be angry and, and I don't have to be perfect. Uh, and my parents loved me for who I was, not, not necessarily for what I could achieve and do or follow their commandments. Um, <clears throat> and throughout my first 20 years, into college, you know, I was raised in this way, which is really very different from how many people are raised and how the larger world really is. And I hated school, so I decided not to pursue medical school. And once I decided not to pursue medical school, I didn't really see the point of really completing college either. Mm. And in the meantime, during those summers, when I was a sophomore and a junior in college, I began to work with a friend of mine doing carpentry work. And, uh, and I got so, uh, so attracted to the real world, which I'd kind of been insulated from up to that point as a child being brought up by bioenergetic parents, you know, who saw the world really very differently than most that I was fascinated by the real world. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and the stint as a carpenter led to dropping out of school at the time and uh, pursuing business. And it was important to me, though, in my feelings to do something fulfilling and uh, something worthwhile to contribute, in effect, and um, and do something positive as opposed to just make money doing whatever, you know. Um, and of course, <clears throat> the current culture incentivizes making money and they don't really care how you do it, you know, as long as you don't kill somebody or just outright steal it, you know. But, but unfortunately, there is a lot of theft that's institutionalized. And I would make the case that many of our leaders are, are not good people that have our interests at heart either, you know, and, and I'm afraid that many people don't see the reality and the truth of that, but that's another story in itself. But I was fascinated by the real world. And so I actually took a 40 year detour doing, um, doing renewable energy work beginning in 1976. And I was a solar contractor for 20 years you know, way back before solar became as popular as it is today. Uh, and again, it was, a, it was a very fulfilling occupation. I felt so good whenever I would be able to get somebody off of an oil heat system or an electric water heater and get them to use renewable energy, which back then I was very much aware of the climate catastrophe that now is all about us. You know, it's all around us. It's uh, undeniable. Although, again, the leaders are trying very hard to, uh, to deny that reality. And, uh, <clears throat> but in any case, I spent, um, as I say, 40 years doing contracting work associated with renewable energy, uh, energy conservation, 
And I sidestepped into other forms of business that included real estate and, and uh, uh, financial investing and that sort of thing. I was fascinated by it. But after 30, 25 or 30 years, I began to realize that no matter how many solar panels I put up, it wasn't really going to change much. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, and I began to recognize how important the work my father was doing. And I've since become very much clued in and recognizing the reality that our biggest problems are really psychological. You know, they're not political. They're not educational. It's not a matter of technology. You know, it's really a matter of how we see and engage with the world, mm-hmm. you know. And more to the point of the bioenergetic work that we do, the problems aren't actually only psychological. The problems are really energetic. It's how we use our personal energy, you know. And, <clears throat> and so... In 2005, I actually joined a training group and and I'd been involved. I say I took a 40-year detour. Well, 20 years, I was really removed from the bioenergetic community, but I'd been very much a part of it from the time I was, I think, a junior in high school at the age of 17. I remember going with my father to various groups and demonstrating some of the physical work and attending many of the workshops back then as as the bioenergetics was first becoming well known. Um, And and of course, it's never become really well known. You know, it's it's far from accepted mainstream psychology or mainstream psychotherapy for that matter, even now. But, uh, but around the world, you know, the bioenergetics is, is well-known, well-respected within circles mm-hmm. in most every country. You know, Dad's books, some of them 65 years old, are still published and relevant today in Spain. They're even using that very first book as a textbook in some universities, nice. you know. And so even though it hasn't been fully embraced or accepted by academia or mainstream psychotherapy work, it has had a tremendous influence really around the world. And you begin to see that now as people's attention really turns to the somatic aspect of psychology, you know? And I'm proud to say that my father, based on his work working with his mentor, Wilhelm Reich, you know, was was instrumental in, in raising that consciousness and that awareness. So once I realized that my dad's work was was really much, much more meaningful than simply helping single individual one-on-one therapy clients, you know, not to diminish that. I mean, yeah. that in itself is huge. But the recognition of how those same dynamics really negatively affect, you know, the problems that individuals have are also the same problems that we as a collective society have, you know, 
And to understand those problems on an individual level give us a tremendous insight as to what the social problems are of our collective society, okay? I would go so far even to say that, you know, if the U.S. population was a single individual, it would be by far be my most challenging client. (laughs) You know, the problems as a collected society are much greater than the problems of even my most difficult clients. The amount of polarization and conflict and anger that comes out in such ridiculous ways, most notably like these mass shootings that we've seen so much of just in this past week, uh, are all are all indications of that mind-body split that I spoke of. You know, anger, for example, is there's no real outlet for healthy anger in this culture. And so the anger doesn't go away just because you don't allow it. You know, it just goes underground, comes out sideways in very inappropriate ways. You know, come out as a road rage on the street, which we've all seen enough of. But most importantly, it comes out in the form of these random mass shootings. You know, there's no question in my mind that these are a result of people who who are not connected with their anger. And then the anger comes out as a rage. It might be a hot rage an impulsive sort of thing, or it can be a cold rage in which a person meticulously plans out the shooting like has happened in the most recent one. But nonetheless, I think that those are evidences and examples of how disconnected we are from, you know, the one emotion of anger. Uh, I I could imagine too, that not only shows up in the way you just described it, it, but it can also come up in health conditions. Absolutely does. Yeah. And this is a huge area that I'm afraid, you know, will be past my lifetime before it really gets explored. Uh, But I I would say, you know, um, that a substantial proportion of medical disorder is a result of these energetic emotional disturbances Mm -hmm. you know a simple example yeah and anger as you point out you know if somebody's not connected their anger and they always swallow their anger and try to keep that energy inside occasionally it blows up like a volcano that anger energy is going to be corrosive to your physical self, to your organs of different sorts. We don't understand understand the the nitty-gritty detail of that, but I think it's very obvious that that's the case. And without understanding that psychological or energetic connection, you know, uh, there's going to be a lot of uh, medical conditions that we're not really going to be able to address adequately except for symptom management. We except for symptom management. And I think that includes, you know, the big, uh, the big disorders like cancer and certainly heart disease is usually affected by psychological or energetic aspects. Mm-hmm. But uh, one thing I'd like to say further about the medical side of things is that I think it's accurate and safe to say that none of us breathe well. 
There's a big story as to why that is, but I think that I could argue that very effectively. And in fact, if any of us look around when we're in a group of people, you know, other people's breathing is almost imperceptible mm. most of the time. You can't see any movement of the chest or the belly as people breathe, typically. You can't hear them breathing. And think about that in contrast to a dog. You mm. know, mm -hmm. a dog, whether the dog is active or laying on the floor, you can see that body breathe. Okay, you can hear that dog breathe. That's healthy breathing. Well, you Not can also see it in babies as well until it's enculturated out of them. Exactly so. Exactly so. So I would make the case that much of our respiratory disease is due to the fact that we don't ventilate our lungs simply. Yeah. You know, we breathe maybe at one third the capacity that we're actually capable of breathing. You know, and what prevents that breathing is fear. Mm. Well, we can talk a little further about that, but, yeah, but no and I definitely would love to do that. Um, but two things you mentioned, I'd like you to just kind of give some explanation around. You mentioned your father, Dr. Alexander Lowen, who was mm. a student of Wilhelm Reich's, Dr. Reich's. Can you tell a bit of the history? And then I'd love to get into the bioenergetic. Yeah, 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 no, the bioenergetics is unlike a lot of common, commonly seen approaches out there today, uh, many that many of your listeners are, are familiar with. The bioenergetic work, I like to think as being many psychoanalysts would disagree with me, I, I got to say right up front, but I frankly feel bioenergetic analysis is how the modality is formally known, is really the truest air and the most developed form of psychoanalysis today. Mm -hmm. It is in effect state-of-the-art psychoanalysis today, okay? Um, it is derived from the psychoanalytic work of Sigmund Freud that goes all the way back to the first and second decade of the last century, you know, the early 1900s. <clears throat> and, it is, it is a direct lineage, basically, from Freud to Wilhelm Reich to my father, right? And uh, just a little bit about the history is that Freud, the older man, uh, was well-established at the University of Vienna, I believe is the name of the school. Um, and I think he had the Viennese Psychoanalytic Association. And Reich, was younger, born in 1897. He fought in the First World War, uh, was very much, you know, right in the middle of it, having grown up uh, on, in the eastern portion of Austria, as I understand it. Um, and, uh, and after the war, he uh, went to the university, planned to become a medical doctor, and learned of Sigmund Freud's interest in the libido. And, and, you know, the sexual aspects of, of life, which is subject psychoanalysis. And so he became quite attracted to Freud and became the only, or at least the first, undergraduate member. Mm -hmm. Freud was so impressed with Reich that he allowed him to join this professional, professional association, even though he hadn't achieved a degree yet, mm -hmm. you know? And so uh, 
Reich, Wilhelm Reich worked with Freud very closely for almost 10 years. And then like many of Freud's colleagues had a falling out of sorts. But in that 10 years, he became a very effective and, and uh, learned uh, psychoanalyst in his own right. And while Freud's early theories began to change, and we don't have time to get into detail of that, Reich took the concept of libido and explored that much, much more fully, you know, first in clinical psychotherapy, psychoanalytic work. And it was during that work there in the 1930s, and that's evidenced by the, you know, by the um, <clears throat> really a groundbreaking book called Character Analysis, which was written by Reich in 1933 in which he began to explain his discoveries of the role of the body in these psychic psychological disorders that the psychoanalysts were up against. Um, and very simply, I think his first awareness really came you know, in the course of doing free association, which was a common technique of psychoanalysts, you know, uh, he had a client who was free associating, just talking about whatever freely came into his mind. But then all of a sudden he came up to something that was going to be disturbing or unpleasant or painful and he stopped speaking. And typically that happens and the psychoanalyst says, you know, keep talking, man, you know, say what you're going to say. But Reich recognized that the, the gentleman also stopped breathing. Mm. So rather than exhort him to keep talking, he simply said, you know, breathe, you know, don't stop breathing, breathe. And with that, all of a sudden, all sorts of material came out that obviously the guy was too embarrassed or too felt too painful. There was too much resistance to be able to simply talk about. But by breathing, which is a, one of our main ways of, of of building energy for ourselves, you know, like any metabolic fire takes fuel and air, okay? And with that, just a little bit of extra, extra energy and the movement of the body, then all this unconscious or semi-conscious psychological material that the gentleman was very afraid of just came out. And from that, Reich recognized how important breathing was in the psychotherapeutic work. And over the next years that Reich conducted psychotherapy, he made breathing a very central focus and developed it and refined it quite a lot more than that initial contact, just keep breathing, you know. He began to explore what it is that gets in the way of people breathing mm -hmm. and why they don't breathe so well and what the fears are that are associated with it. And Reich went on to study it biologically in the laboratory, you know, and he uh, developed the idea of the libido as a form of energy, you know, personal energy. And we all intuitively know about this energy. We talk about our own energy, you know, I feel really energized today, or I don't have much energy, you know, or his energy is really good, or their energy is really bad, you know, 
And a good doctor, of course, they may not use instruments to measure the energy, but I have a doctor, for example, who when he sees me, he says, oh, your energy's good. I see from the bouncing your step, you know, or otherwise, right? And so energy is something, it's, it's obviously a fact of life. And it's something that we all intuitively connect to. And yet it's a no-show concept in academic psychology or medicine. There's a whole story around that. And it has to do with the fact that energy is not quantifiable. You know, we cannot measure energy directly. And so it doesn't fit into the way we do science today, which is really measure, which is really based on objective, you know, external measurement of typically matter. We can measure matter, all aspects of it. We can measure its size, its shape, its weight, its texture, its color, all sorts of different things, okay? But energy doesn't lend itself to that kind of measurement. Now, of course, we measure kilowatts and we measure amperage and we measure temperature and we measure, you know, all sorts of different things. But bear in mind that what those measurements actually are is the effect of energy on that particular matter. It's not a measurement of the energy itself. Okay. Okay. That's interesting because in my experience, it's only the astrophysicists and physicists in general, scientists in general, that actually understand that measure that energy doesn't lend itself to measurement. Mm. And for that reason, energy is not, doesn't enter into, you know, medicine directly or academic psychology. We talk about energy, of course, you know, and the ATP molecules and the importance of glucose. And, and we understand that the blood is the means by which the energy is distributed around the body. We understand what it takes to make the energy, you know, but we understand it from an objectified perspective as though we're describing, you know, some mechanism, okay? We don't connect to it subjectively on a feeling level in any sort of a patterned way, all right? And that's what Reich really began to do in the 1940s, even in the 1930s. And, and, and there's a huge story uh, to what he discovered and, and what kind of implications it has for medical work. But my father met Reich in 1940. And, uh, and Reich had just come from Europe, escaping the scourge of the Nazis. Although fascinating story, I mean, uh, Reich, you know, uh, Reich's ideas were so revolutionary that he was not only escaping the Nazis, but he was also escaping the communists and even the psychoanalysts. Yeah. You know, it's like, I think it was Copernicus and did they torture him or actually burn him at the stake for hypothesizing that, uh, that the earth was not the center of the universe, right? So it's that same kind of aversion to truly revolutionary ideas that somehow get people into trouble. And Reich was a good example of that. 
So, uh, you know, he wasn't hurting anybody and he didn't, uh, you know, he wasn't a real threat to anybody. And yet the Nazis would have killed him if they got a hold of him. The communists would have killed him if they got a hold of him. And the psychoanalysts didn't want any part of him. They didn't want him to join any of their groups. You know, once he got onto this discussion about energy and the body and feelings and, and real sexuality. <clears throat> so Reich was brilliant. And um, uh, my father says that Reich was, was the most brilliant man he'd ever met. And my dad's no dummy, you know? Um, your, your father was both a lawyer and a medical doctor. Is that correct? He was. He, uh, he got his law degree, I think, in the early 1930s. But he spent that time being a high school teacher. Hmm. You know, that was during Depression. Depression. And I think good legal jobs were, uh, were, um, were not so readily available. And, um, and so he spent the 1930s first working for the Census Bureau, and actually in 1930, uh, but then became a, a high school teacher for the next 10 or more years. And always, though, interested, because in the wintertime, he would do the teaching. In the summertime, he was an athletic director for one of the camps in upstate New York. <laughs> And so he always had this interest in the mind, the intellectuality of the mind, and the physical somatic aspect of the body, you know, through fitness and physical exercise and sports. So when Reich came in the 1940s, he connected, Reich connected with the uh, New School of Social Research, I believe it was, in Long Island, New York City and uh, offered courses as a professor. And he offered a course, I wish I knew the name of it, but it had to do with mind-body connection. And my dad had always been interested in that, but never really knew quite you know, where to go with it, what to do with it, until he met Reich. Mm. And then Reich really opened some doors for him. And uh, and he worked with Reich for seven years, starting around 1940, maybe 1941, first as a student in Reich's classes, but then as a client or a patient, as Reich was a medical doctor. And then he was so taken by the work that he himself wanted to become a therapist and began doing therapy work in the, in the mid-1940s under Reich as a supervisor. Mm -hmm. And then after the war ended, he went to Switzerland to gain his medical degree with the interest of coming back and really formalizing the work that he'd learned from Wilhelm Reich. And so when he came back in 1951, which was the year I was born, he spent a couple of years establishing his medical practice and then I think it was in 1956, he actually created the Institute for Bioenergetic Analysis in Manhattan. And he and two colleagues really began to work on each other to better understand what he had learned from Wilhelm Reich 10 years earlier. And out of that really developed what now is known as bioenergetic analysis. It's based entirely on the work of Wilhelm Reich. 
you know, which in itself is based on on much work by Sigmund Freud and others, you know, who were involved in that movement back in those days. Um, but Dad also added uh, some very important aspects to the Reich work as well. I think the two most important, well, he did really three different things, I think, uh, in addition to what he brought forward from, uh, from the Reichian work. Um, the first is that he really, in my view, completed the study of characterology. Mm. Freud had begun, you know, in defining the anal character, I think, as it was known back then. And then Reich took that and further developed it and really began to work with what's now known, you know, the anal character became the masochistic character, but then also really described the oral character, the schizoid character to some degree, and, and the rigid or what they call genital character. And, and just to give listeners a little bit of an idea as to what we're talking about, these characters, schizoid, oral, masochistic, rigid, or genital, you know, they're basically the, the uh, analogous, uh, they all reflect human development from an energetic perspective, okay? Um, and in academic psychology, of course, we also have character development, human development is, is comes out of the psychodynamic understanding. And the oral character, for example, denotes a fixation that happens in the earliest phase of life after birth, where children are dependent on their mother for nutrition and for contact and comfort and safety and connection, okay? And if those, if those needs are not met during that period of time when the child is breastfeeding or, or would be breastfeeding, then that fix, fixation becomes part of the person's character, mm. you know, partly personality, but mostly character. And that becomes, that defines a little bit as to how that person relates to the world, right? Uh, so a child who doesn't have, who doesn't, who hasn't received the kind of support from their mother that you would normally expect, you know, uh, in attachment language, you know, um, has, has tremendous abandonment, fears of abandonment. And their body reflects the fact that they weren't fulfilled as, as children, you know? Um, <clears throat> and it has both somatic and psychological ramifications there. But I don't wanna to get too much into the story of character because that's a huge area in itself. But I wanted to just you know, let your listeners know a little bit about what character refers to. And it refers specifically to fixations in the course of human development. And the human development is very much, a, it's best told as an energetic story rather than as a psychological or physiological story. 
uh, energetically, you know, newborns, their entire attention is focused on their mouth because it's through the mouth that they get nutrition from their mother and they make contact with their mother and they get that support from their mother, ideally, if the mother is healthy. <clears throat> after, after one or two years, the attention begins to change, the energetic focus begins to, to shift from the mouth to the anus, which of course, you know, heralds the toilet training period. And if there are fixations during this period, which are typically characterized by uh, power struggles mm -hmm. between the parents who want the child to learn how to go to the bathroom by themselves, and the child who is afraid to, yeah. you know, needs that support, very comfortable doing their job in their pants, expecting the parents to clean them. So that can create a lot of frustration and even power struggles between the child and the parent and can lead to all sorts of psychological and somatic disorder. Once the child passes through for ill or for good through that stage, then the focus shifts from the anus to the genitals. Mm. And that's where the genital character or the rigid character is referenced. And um, in the genital stage, you know, there's a phase which is called the Oedipal dynamic, which I think as humans, we all go through. That itself is a huge story and very controversial these days. In the field of neuroscience, they find no evidence of the Oedipal complex. But of course, neuroscience can't validate everything in reality anyways. And this is just one of those things that is beyond their, their tools to really be able to assess and evaluate. But I think any psychotherapist that works in a psychodynamic way with dynamics of childhood, um, you know, has experienced the effect of the so-called Oedipal complex, the Oedipal dynamic. And I feel like I see it almost every time I encounter a young family that has young children, you know, one child or more. I can see many of these dynamics playing out between the child and the parent of the opposite sex and the feeling of the parent of the same sex, you know? Now, if the parents have a good relationship with each other, then the Oedipal complex comes and passes normally without any issue. And I think it's very important in in the child's future relationships as an adult. If the child gets stuck in some way, fixated in the Oedipal dynamic, then it compromises their ability to have a good connection to a romantic partner in the future. Can you explain ener energetically how it shows up in these different developmental stages if, it's, if there's dysfunction? Yeah. Um, you know, best by way of an example, uh, and we'll just pick up where I left off with the Oedipal dynamic. Uh, typically, the story of the Oedipal dynamic is taken out of the Greek mythology, the story of Oedipus, who inadvertently, you know, on his return home from some adventure, runs into his father, the king, who is an obnoxious power figure 
And he ends up killing him on the road because the king is so obnoxious and insulting and, and, uh, and, uh, uh, and after killing and not knowing, of course, that he was his father is, is the important point in the mythology. And so he goes on to the city and ends up marrying the king's wife, who is actually his mother. All right. And that's the story of the myth. Now, our understanding of the Oedipal complex is a very similar dynamic in the sense that children develop a special fondness. It's not a sexuality in adult way. You know, it's not a genital sexuality, but it's that special kind of fondness that, that we have with our romantic partners, ideally. Um, and it's different. It has that different fondness quality than the relationship with the parent of the same sex. Now, if the parents have a good relationship, like I said before, the child passes through that period, no issue, no problem. But in the case where, which is too often the case, where the parents don't get along as well as they might, you know, um, you know, perhaps the father is distant and not emotionally available to either the child or his wife, you know, um, maybe there's disruption in the sexual relationship and there's lack of fulfillment in the relationship then in that example, and it can happen with men just as easily as women, but in this example, the male child, the woman can then turn to the male child for the kind of emotional connection that she doesn't get from her husband, mm. okay? And that creates all sorts of problems for the child, in fact, all right? Because then the child becomes responsible for the well-being of the mother. Mm -hmm. Is, is only one of many disturbances that can happen in that circumstance. But what compounds whatever disturbances happen in that, in that relationship there, you know, additionally, you have the hostility of the same-sex parent mm -hmm. who is also unfulfilled in the marital relationship. And, and because of that lack of fulfillment, there develops a hostility and jealousy towards the male child who is enjoying the contact with the mother, the husband's wife, mm -hmm. okay? And so the child is caught with this, with this almost adult sexuality coming from the mother who needs that kind of emotional contact that she's not otherwise getting from her husband or anybody else, okay? And yet the child feels threatened. And of course, we're talking a child that may be 50, 60, 70 pounds versus an adult that's 150 or 160 or 170 pounds, okay? Feeling that hostility and jealousy towards the child and the child's sexuality shuts down out of fear, mm. okay? And so as an adult, that child doesn't have the kind of free access, free of fear, access to their feeling of, of you know, closeness and intimacy with a, with a partner of their own age by the time they get to be an adult. Uh, and so that's a very, you know, largely because the fear of what can happen if they exercise, you know, if, if they allow themselves to feel that connection with another person, 
they've been conditioned with the fear of their father's retribution, retaliation. And, and just so I'm clear, the conditioning is not just a mental re- reaction to the uh, perceived threats. It's a somatic one energetically, but also shows up not just energetically, but in the musculature. Is that accurate? Well, that's why it's so valuable to talk about the energetic reaction, okay? Because you're absolutely right. It's not just a cognitive mental condition that results. It's very much a somatic condition that the fear creates this chronic muscular tension, you know, to not allow the sexual feelings to show. So the pelvis becomes rigid. Okay, and that's why that character type is also commonly known as a rigid character type, because the fear suppresses that feeling of of connection, or even the feeling of just showing any feelings at all. Anger at the at the father wouldn't be accepted either. And so, how do we not show those feelings by becoming more rigid, more controlled? Okay, and that rigidity is is in the form of chronic muscular tension in the body you know and, and it reduces the, yeah in the oral stage it's very similar but the energetic and the contractions are different parts of the body absolutely in the mouth the throat and the chest is collapsed because it was never fulfilled okay okay psychologically they become very dependent Mm-hmm. And yet to compensate for that reality of being dependent psychologically, they take on a compensated mode of being overly independent. You know, they're the ones in charge. They get the job as the manager, for example, to prove to themselves that they are not, in fact, dependent as they are in reality. But where it comes out is in the relationships. Okay, they get into relationships and all of a sudden they become like a little child and they become completely dependent on their partner, you know, clinging vine, for example, and they just need that partner to try to recapture that need they didn't get from their mother. And of course, that drives a wedge in the relationship because, you know, nobody wants to be clung to in that way. You know, it's like a drowning person that climbs on top of the person who comes out and saves them, right? And uh, so you've got that kind of distortion in the case of the oral character. And I wanted to make a point because you asked, you know, it's not just a mental thing, but it also is a somatic thing. The proper way, the best way, the most accurate way to understand that is energetically. You know, for thousands of years, philosophers have asked the question, what is the connection? Where is the connection between how we think and how we feel? All right. And if you talk only in terms of psychology, you cannot discover it because it's not there. You know, psychology really refers to how our cognitions work, how our mental, how we think. You know, the non-material aspects of, of our existence, whereas the physiology and the physical side of our body is, is really, you know, it's the subject of neuroscience as they understand how the central nervous system works, but, but everything, you know, hormonal activity, neuronal activity, 
um, you know, aches and pains and organ failure of different sorts. And of course, like we talked about earlier, heart disease and cancer, you know, is that really a random event or is there a psychological component? But the best way to understand it is energetically because I'm frankly convinced that the answer to that age old problem, the solution to the body-mind connection, the body-mind solution is energy. Energy links our cognitive activities with our somatic experience, with our somatic activities. If we talk about the energy of fear, for example, you know, fear, as we learn from Wilhelm Reich, is the emotion that creates contraction. And if we talk about it only physiologically, then we say that fear causes our muscles to become chronically tense. You know, every chronically tense muscle is, is tense because of fear. You know, we tighten up when we're under threat, you know. If you talk about it only psychically, cognitively, well, then the fear affects us because we're limited in our behavior and our activity. You know, we feel like we have to control ourselves, control our feelings, because if we don't, something fearful is going to happen. All right. We're not willing to be fully alive and spontaneous because of our fear of, you know, how we're going to feel in the future or what's going to happen to us. And again, you can't explain the physiological effect purely in psychological terms. And that's why this question, you know, what's the linkage between mind and body has been unanswered for so many millennium, you know, for a really long time. And only in the last hundred years with this study of energy that we recognize that, that the energy is the link between the non-material mind and the material physical body. Mm. So that if you experience fear, you're gonna contract and you're gonna contract physically in your musculature and the functioning of your, of your central nervous system, but you're also gonna contract in the way you perceive and engage in the world psychologically. You know, fear sets in and you got to maintain control of yourself because of what may happen if you don't, you know, and you gotta, you gotta not let your anger come out and you can't show your weakness, for example. Okay. They're all, you know, on a psychological level, contraction results in a withdrawal, a pulling back and a, and, and a fear of engagement. You know, some of my clients are afraid to go to the grocery store you know, for fear of being judged by the people in the store, wow. very simply, you know? And, um, and so I think that it's important to understand that energy is a solution to the age-old body-mind problem. How is, how is the non-material mind linked to the physical somatic body? It's through energy, describes it. Okay. So bioenergetically, I understand now can diagnose and assess through looking at these different characterological types and how it shows up uh, musculature, cognition, energetically. 
what do you do then with that information in terms of a treatment protocol? Well, you know, um, information is only a part of it. The other part of it as a bioenergetic therapist is my own feelings. Okay. I, uh, if I'm good in the therapy work that I do, I can oftentimes feel a person's sadness or I can feel their anger, you know, even if they're trying to hide it, you know, it comes out in some of the physical work that we do, you know, they may not be comfortable to show it. And so my feeling as a therapist, my subjective experience, Okay, uh, becomes very important in helping people feel better, mm. basically, you know. Uh, but, but the information that it provides is also valuable, too, you know. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, how does it help? I mean, you know, I can distinguish from body type, typically, just by looking at somebody and listening to how they speak and observing their movement. How they breathe, obviously, too. How they breathe is huge, yeah. you know, although irrespective of the character type, none of us breathe well. Okay. You know, that, that's, that's simple to say uh, and accurate as well. Uh, so everybody has to, has to come to terms with their breathing, but it's true. Different characters breathe differently. Okay. Um, uh, oral character, for example, you know, is basically, is basically breathing from an empty lung. Hmm. You know, I mean, the, the lung is not full, just like the body is not full. And so they breathe very shallowly. And the lung spends a lot of time being empty hmm. uh, or near empty. You know, they, you know, if a normal person has, you know, if a healthy person, let me say, if a healthy person breathes through, you know, they inhale and they bring, bring in this much air and then they exhale and they exhaust that much air. Okay. We'll call that real healthy breathing. All right. Now people have their many different kinds of patterns of breathing. But an oral character will tend to breathe like this off okay. the bottom of the cycle. Okay. A masochistic character will tend to bring breathe off the top of the cycle. Okay. And characteristically, an oral person would would typically, it would be a typical um, body type to be very thin and even to have a little bit of a sunken collapse concaveness to their chest. Mm because they weren't in fact fulfilled nutritionally or psychologically by their mother, okay? A masochist on the other hand, who's experienced issues with toilet training, which also are oftentimes accompanied by issues with eating, mm. you know, a parent who's over obsessed with child toilet training is typically also overly obsessed with how the child eats the right time of day, the right kind of food and all this sort of stuff. And then what happens is a child develops constrictions both in the throat and in the anus, hmm. okay? As a reaction to the, to the, as resistance and reaction 
to the parents' insistence that they eat and they go to the bathroom on command, in effect, right? And that kind of body type is, is is typified by, you know, really full body, okay? Mm. Constricted at both ends. You know, it's like a balloon that has two inlets mm-hmm. and outlets. You know, all, all living things, of course, are characterized by a tube whereby we take food in on the one end and that's how we, and that's how we engage with the world and judge the world, interact with the world. And then of course the discharge you know, uh, discharge uh, uh, at the other end, okay? And there needs to be no restriction to that. And yet many people suffer with eating disorders. They deal with digestion issues and going to the bathroom, defecating, even urinating becomes an issue for many people. You know, there's a fear that many men can't urinate if somebody else is in the room. You know, and of course, all sorts of people have different problems in bowel movement, and we have different names for all those, and we consider those to be medical issues. But I think you can appreciate that what I'm describing, to the degree that's really true, that psychological effects or energetic, again, it's more accurate to, to, to label it as an energy issue, an energetic process, or an energetic dysfunction you know, can cause physical medical disorder in much the same way. Right? So, okay. So I see how you diagnose and assess people. I hear how you are open or your clinicians who are trained bioenergetically are open to feel their own, their own self sense and how, how they can f- use that to feel into someone else and get a sense of how they are doing anger repressed or sadness held in or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So with all that, then how do you actually help someone undo these different dynamics that are restricting them and making them rigid and contracted and unable to function really in many areas of their life? Yeah. Um, we have a lot of different techniques yeah. for different sorts of things, you know, um, just to show your listeners, both my mother and my father who are on the cover of yeah. this book, you know, the way to vibrant health. Okay. And that is my dad <laughs> and my mom actually <laughs> doing that exercise, which That's is cool. much more difficult than it looks <laughs> as well, you know, have developed, and this is one of the things that Dad did as part of the further development of the Reich work. This book lists a hundred different exercises that are commonly used in bioenergetic body psychotherapy work. And these exercises are designed both just purely physically to help a person, you know, get energy moving in their body. So the energy's not stuck. So the musculature is not chronically tense. Okay. But also the emotionally expressive exercises also, you know, um, are geared to helping a person's emotions become unstuck. Mm -hmm. All right. So if a person is afraid to get angry, all right. Then we work with them on emotionally de- expressive level to give them the physical feeling of what it looks like to express their anger. 
physically. Okay. And that way to be able to make connection to the energy and the feeling of the anger and not have it be disconnected, buried somewhere, suppressed or repressed inside, but that it's fully accessible and available to be used in an appropriate way in the here and now. Because if it's repressed or suppressed or distorted in some way, or I should say, if it's repressed or suppressed, it will come out, but it'll come out in a distorted way. It'll come out sideways or it'll come out in a way that's totally inappropriate for the circumstance. But, but let me answer the question too in a slightly different way as well, because those are only examples of how we deal with some feelings. Generally, the work, the work involves like a three-legged stool is the way I think about it. And the three legs are, the first two legs are common to any psychodynamic approach, you know, including psychoanalysis. And the first two, which really are very much part of the cognitive talk therapy aspect, but not entirely, um, is really an examination of a person's childhood history Mm -hmm. to understand the kind of experiences they had as a child that really infected them with fears of their own feelings, right? And then we also examine their behavior and activity and their feelings and their thinking in the here and now, right? And typically if people have issues that they seek therapy for, you know, there are patterns of behavior. And whether it's patterns of always getting together with the wrong partner romantically or not feeling like, you know, the job that they're doing is is what they really most want to be doing. Or if there's, you know, obviously obsessive compulsive sort of behavior is is debilitating many times. Like we talked about eating disorder, digestive issues, even physical issues. I work with a number of people who were seeking relief from a lot of stomach pain that they have been through the mill in trying to find a medical disorder that they can correct Mm -hmm. and come up with nothing. You know, all the imaging, all the testing, everything brings back normal results. And yet they might be debilitated in pain. And discomfort. And they finally come to the conclusion that it must be, there must be an emotional component to it, if not the emotional is the cause of it. And so, in some cases, you know, I've got one client who really came to me with physical symptoms, and more than one actually, uh, who come with more physical symptoms and psychological symptoms but only after they've been through the gamut of trying to understand is there a medical organic physiological aspect to it and um, oh um you're talking about the three legs of your stool thank you thank you yeah i did i did did fall off the train of my thought there so (laughs) thanks for (laughs) no worries Um, so generally speaking, you know, the areas that the, uh, that, that the, um, the work involves is examining childhood experience, the history, 
examining the patterns that exist in the here and now, patterns that that don't work for the person, that don't contribute to their well-being, good feelings, uh, and to try to understand what the relationship is between those. Okay, but what's unique and important about body psychotherapy generally, but especially the bioenergetic work then, is that we use the body directly to access those feelings, all right? Or the lack of those feelings is more often the situation or the distortion of those feelings, okay? So I, for example, can tell, you know, because I pay attention to this, but anybody can do it once they get familiar with it, I can tell very readily the difference between dysfunctional anger and healthy anger, okay? Okay. I can also detect fears, oftentimes fears that the client is completely unaware of. You know, they deny that there's a fear involved with whatever behavior or attitudes that they have until we examine it. And then they begin to connect to the reality that, yeah, that's really, yeah, I'm, I'm engaged with that because I'm afraid of what will happen if I don't engage with it. Yeah. Is oftentimes, you know, I, I use the example going to college as a simple example, you know. I mean, you would think that going to college would be something that people would want to do because, you know, they may earn a good living and have a better life and they may enjoy the skills and knowledge they learn in applying it. But the reality is that, that most people go to school out of fear of what's going to become of them if they don't go to school, okay? And people don't connect to the reality that fear motivates them in these very subtle ways, sometimes not so subtle. Yeah. All right? And um, uh, and the work with the body then in the bioenergetic approach is really to encourage people to connect in a somatically expressive embodied is the current fad word now embodied way you know, what their true feelings are, mm-hmm. um, you know, so for example, a person who has a lot of anger towards their parents, and many people have a lot of anger towards their parents, and, and they're not aware of it, you know, they don't feel the anger, the anger comes out in all sorts of other ways. But because they were afraid of their parents as a child, you know, putting their anger on their parents is too scary. And so it goes to a safe object like their children or their wife or just some random guy on the street. Okay. Uh, And that's how fear affects people's anger and limits their access to it. Uh, So we work directly in a case like that of, you know, how accessible uh, is your anger? Show me your anger, you know? And oftentimes, you know, people can voice the words, you know, of like, I hate you, but I don't feel it. Yeah. I don't get the feeling. They know they're angry, but they don't feel it. Okay. So we work with them to get them to actually feel that anger and to really be able to connect to it. 
to where it really belongs. Yeah. You know, oftentimes that their father or their mother, right? Doesn't mean they can't have love for their parents at the same time, but just because they love them doesn't mean they can't be angry at them as well. You know, the example I was going to use was to say that, you know, even if a person has awareness of the amount of anger that they have at their parents, they often deny the longing and love that they have as well. Mm, interesting. Okay. So this is a common problem with incest victims, mm. right? In incest, of course, you know, it's only normal to think that how could anybody not be angry at the parent or the uncle uncle that engaged in incest with a four-year-old child or a 10-year-old girl or whatever it might be okay and certainly there's anger there and you need to be connected to it but you know what else is there the longing mm. the desire and the love you know, which is often what set them up for the incest. You know, they love that person to the point they let that person do what they wanted and they helped keep the secret mm. out of the longing and the love, which is long forgotten. But that's very much a part of the story. And, you know, I don't think that an incest survivor can get over the trauma of it without acknowledging the soft feelings associated. Wow with the experience, you know? So that's an example, I think, of, of how people aren't connected with the full range of the feelings that are involved. Wow. Well, this is a very, really good overview of like diagnosis and assessment and some of the tools and techniques and, that you work with clients to help free them up and free the energy to flow through the body and the feelings to emerge. Um, and obviously there's, all these exercises you have in the books, yeah. and quite yeah. a few books too. Yeah, yeah, fourteen your books father. your dad wrote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I'm curious if in the last minute we have, could you talk a little bit about the foundation, the books, the classes, the book sure, no, classes? You know, the only seminars. thing I just want to come back. There's one thing I wanted to say when we were talking about the Oedipal dynamic. Yep. You know, I believe, you know, the Oedipal dynamic is very controversial. There are a lot of modern psychologists who don't believe that there is such a thing. I think that it's totally, you know, all the incest, all the sexual abuse that we see within families, in my opinion, is a direct result of the Oedipal dynamic. Hmm. You know, I would, I would make that hypothesis. <laughs> so anyways, with that said, Yes, uh, the Alexander Lowen Foundation, for which I'm executive director, uh, is, is, is function is to raise consciousness, awareness, visibility of this very important work, which otherwise has not really impacted academic psychology or, or mainstream science more generally, and it should because it's very powerful. It's state-of-the-art psychotherapy, in my opinion, and it has huge ramifications for the evolution of psychology as a science, but also for the evolution of science more broadly, because our science is very powerful in objectified, quantified analysis, but it's very weak 
in understanding nature's subjective experience, which is hugely important, you know? I mean, feelings are the last thing that we really consider oftentimes when we talk psychology and science. And yet it's our feelings that move us through life for good or for ill, you know? And to not understand the subjective experience of feelings, that feelings are not thoughts and ideas, because most psychologists, they talk about feelings and say, oh yeah, we work with feelings. But no, they're not working with feelings. They're only talking about feelings. Mm -hmm. They're working with the symbols of feelings, the yeah. words that represent feelings, not the feelings themselves. Similar to working with, you know, energies effect on matter. You know, you can measure the effect of matter, but you can't measure the effect of, the, you can't measure the energy itself. Same thing with the feelings, you know, you can, you can evaluate the words, but if the, if the thinking and the feeling is not connected, then those words are not accurate. Yeah. And there's very little direct work with the feelings as I've tried to describe it during this, this, uh, this hour that we've had together. Uh, so the work of the foundation is really one that, that promotes bioenergetics and, and the wisdom of my father, which is still entirely relevant, you know, uh, uh, even though his first book was written 65 years ago. You know, it's, it's as fresh and relevant and new as it was in 1957 Wow! when it was written. And, and people don't get that. They think somehow that if it's that old, it must be incorporated into all the knowledge that we now currently have. Nothing can be further from the truth. You know, that book, Language of the Body, that, that really explains a lot of this stuff, is very much as much state of the art now as it was then, you know. Um, I remember they used to talk about those books as being 50 years ahead of their time. Mm -hmm. Now, 65 years later, it's plain that they should have said they're 100 years ahead of yeah, their yeah, time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because they're still 50 years ahead of their time. So through the foundation, people can get the books, for example. And Amazon, they're widely available. Yeah, the foundation publishes all the books that, that have, you know, four of the books have been continuously published since they were first published. Nice. Yeah. 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 14 books in all. Okay. You know, four of them continue to be published by both Simon Schuster and Penguin. And those that have been out of print, the foundation now publishes in both print form and ebook form. And as you say, we also offer events. This, this morning, we had our book club meeting, for example, that examines this book we're talking about, Language of the Body, is our feature this month and next month. But we also do, my colleague runs groups. We all do individual sessions, even remotely. We have very good ways to work somatically. Hard to believe, but we've been doing it for five years, well before the pandemic came out. And it's surprisingly effective, even remotely. Yeah. And, uh, and we haven't done it yet. We've been threatening to do it for a couple of years. And we will, by God, get there soon, hopefully this year, offer online courses in this material. You yeah. know, We have plans to offer maybe a one or two-day course. 
and then we've also got a 10 session course that we're that we're working on it'll still be mostly introductory as, as opposed to certifying but it will be i think a meaningful way to access some of this uh some of this you also mentioned colleagues can you talk about the, the breadth of the like in terms of the globe because i know you have colleagues all over the globe this is not just here in the states yeah, well, it's a little bit of a tricky sort of a situation because my father created the Institute, like I mentioned earlier, the Institute for Bioenergetic Analysis, which, which in the 1970s became the International Institute for Bioenergetic Analysis. And my dad ran that institute from 1956 when it was created until 1996 when he resigned at the age of 86 years old. Unfortunately, since then, the people who have taken that over have modified his work into what they now call modern bioenergetics, which is much more of a relational approach as opposed to an energetic approach. You know, it's still based somatically and it's good therapy work, but it's not, it doesn't embrace the energetic approach of Wilhelm Reich or Alexander Lowen. Okay. So that's what the foundation is doing. Now, speaking of that, over the years, there's probably a few thousand bioenergetic therapists around the world, many of whom have learned directly from my father, you know, before he resigned, the older ones especially. And of course, we work increasingly with, with people around. Um, but what I would say is the reason that we offered remote therapy is because there isn't a lot all over the world. Okay. The books have outpaced the accessibility of the therapy. Got it. So yeah. I work with people, you know, from Australia and from Europe and from South America, all over the world, oftentimes because they don't have access to a knowledgeable bioenergetics therapist, psychotherapist. And as I say, you know, there was demand for that. You know, I got into it originally because I couldn't find somebody to refer a client to. Mm. And so five years ago, three years before the pandemic hit, pandemic drove every psychotherapist online. But prior to that, you know, people thought psychotherapy online, body psychotherapy online? <laughs> yeah. Really? No, you can't do it. But in fact, it's surprisingly effective, you know, and and then when the pandemic hit, you know, all of a sudden I was like an expert because I'd already been doing it for two or three years, but not because of the pandemic drove me online because there aren't a lot of bioenergetic therapists around the world to, you know, provide therapy to everybody. Yeah. You know. For now, <laughs> put it that way. Thank you, Michael. Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> appreciate the opportunity to be with you and your yeah. listeners. Yeah. So, where can people learn more about the institute, the foundation, all the books, et cetera, et cetera? A website. Yeah, yeah certainly from our website www.lowenfoundation.org. Okay. You know, and um, and. Uh, I offer, as you know, you know, consultations at no charge, you know, so there's a no obligation opportunity for people to get a real feel for what this work feels like myself and my colleagues, 
We've currently got four therapists on staff, effectively. We're all independent. We have our own private practice, but then we also, you know, provide therapy for people coming through the foundation who are expressly looking then for bioenergetic work. Um, so the books are an excellent place to start, but then, you know, come to the website and, yeah. see, you know, see what's there because we continue to grow. It's been really, uh, especially these last several years has, has really been very gratifying, uh, to see the interest. Good. And let, let me add to that too, because you can see, you can go to YouTube and find your interviews of you. Yep. And also find interviews of your father and talks that your father gave as well. That's right. That's right. We maintain and we continue to archive some old material that otherwise is hidden away in videos, you know, uh, CDs and, and you know, non-published papers and that sort of thing. And I think, you know, the most important thing is to recognize that as old as this material is, this is a grandfather of much body psychotherapy work, you know, uh, begun, as I say, in 1955, 1956. Um, <clears throat> oh, where was I going with that? Um, well, as old as this material is, it's 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 all about feelings and feelings have not been really explored neuroscience yes you know the physiology yes the psychology yes but the energetics and the feeling itself not so much and so even though as i said before these books are you know decades old they're still state of the art well, thank you, Frederick. I'll definitely include links uh, to everything we just talked about. I really enjoyed this conversation. Yes. I would encourage people to check out uh, all your work and the foundation. And uh, good luck to you. Thank you, Michael. And good luck to you and everybody.